Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Ben Goldsmith is an environmentalist and sustainability-focused investment pioneer. Founder and CEO of London-listed investment firm Manhattan, Ben and the team focus their attention on the theme of energy and resource efficiency. Having previously co-founded the clean tech-focused investment firm Web back in 2003, Goldsmith has a long track record delivering returns in this space. Ben has also used his personal wealth to support both philanthropic and political projects in this area. Ben and I discuss how Manhattan identify companies delivering or benefiting from the efficient use of energy. We unpick the firm's unique criteria for portfolio inclusion and highlight the stocks that figure in the current fund. And after a historic year for clean energy returns in 2020, Ben gives us his outlook for the second half of 2021. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Great to have you on the show. Uh, how's your week been so far? Thank you very much for having me. Um, my week's been very nice. Uh, it's, it's Easter, so I'm down in Somerset where we live most of the time. And uh, first signs of spring. And we've been in the process of rewilding our land down here during the last year. And so this is the first spring where little patches of scrub and young trees and wildflowers are actually popping up through the fields so it's quite exciting to see and i'm pretty happy to be here yeah sounds lovely it sounds pretty uh, idyllic actually uh, in comparison to the view i've got out of my window in central london yeah london's lovely in spring too though <laughs> primrose hill you know, green park can be lovely yeah, no, very true. Um, okay, well, I thought we could open the episode by discussing uh, a focus of yours and Manhattan's as well, which is investment geared towards sustainability. So can investing in businesses that deliver or benefit from the efficient use of energy deliver outsized investment returns, in your opinion? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, that's really been the kind of thrust of my whole investing career. Um, I set up a business in the late um, 2000s, in fact, just after the financial crisis of 2008, called Web WHEB Asset Management, um, which today runs um, almost a billion pounds in a long-only large-cap equity strategy, focused on exactly the same theme that Manhattan focuses on. And I still remain involved in Web. And I've been convinced since those days that the world is undergoing, I guess you could say, a green industrial revolution. Um, and I think the core territory of that green industrial revolution revolves around industrial sectors of all kinds trying to find ways to use resources much more efficiently. And that's not just energy, it's raw materials, it's water, it's their own waste streams. So the emergence of circular economic models, for example, whereby we lease products and send them back rather than buying them and throwing them away. Um, emergence of renewables, which is obviously the ultimate um, circular economic model, um, electrification of transport, um, all of these things are beginning to take off in ways that we couldn't really have imagined when we first started my previous business web. So I, I, I certainly think this is one of the great secular trends of our time. And that's why I've chosen to focus on it as an investor. Yeah, it's fascinating. Actually, uh, we could probably start by talking about web in terms of introducing you to the audience. Uh, you became a partner and founded that business, I, I believe, back in 2003. But you actually pivoted the company's focus from corporate finance advice, as far as I can tell, uh, to providing venture capital to the European clean technology sector. So we've already alluded to there, investing in, in clean tech, clean energy is, is obviously a passion. But was the web um, pivot and project your, your first business venture in this space? Yeah. So I, I began my working life in a private client broking firm called Hargreave Hale. Um, and in fact, my first boss there, Dan Marks, remains my stockbroker today. Mm. Hargreave Hale was bought by Canaccord Genuity quite recently. And I left Hargreave Hale to team up with the guys at WHEB, Web, And they were running an advisory firm, which was 
working with early stage clean technology businesses, really at the very beginnings of, of clean tech as a thing in the kind of 2002, 2003, that sort of time, helping those businesses to raise capital and, and develop their routes to market and, and so on. And I persuaded them to launch a venture capital fund with me. And um, that's what we did. And um, our returns were not good <laughs> with that first fund. We invested in some very early stage businesses that had big capital intensity and you know, we really I was very excited at that time by a lot of these kind of very early stage things. And Web um within a few years had grown into um a multi-asset platform. So Web had a private equity team emerging out of that venture business um and a listed equities team which I which I mentioned earlier in our conversation. And um in about 2014 we split the business. So Web Asset Management, which retains the name, operates out of London and runs a series of very large publicly traded equity funds. And the private equity part of Web has rebranded Alpina Partners and runs several hundred million euros out of Munich, investing in kind of mid-market, lower mid-market German Mittelstand businesses within the sphere of, of energy and resource efficiency. So I had the kind of idea that I would create a sort of Blackstone, you know, a multi-asset platform addressing this theme. Mm. And um, in the end, that, that didn't work out as I expected, but two successful businesses have emerged from it. And in 2014, I decided to set up a new business separate, um, which we called Manhattan. And Manhattan is a listed investment trust. Uh, we raised £80 million in the initial public offering in 2015. Um, and the idea was to try and emulate the best characteristics of some of those other long-term often family-founded investment vehicles in London. Think RIT PLC, um, Jacob Rothschild's vehicle. Mm. And, and in fact, the chief executive of RIT, Graham Thomas, is my partner in Manhattan. Mm. Um, think Caledonia or Foreign and Colonial, uh, British Imperial Trust, which is recently rebranded. Um, these vehicles often outperform the market and outperform other kinds of investment managers, partly because they have this tremendously long-term patient approach to investing because they're closed-ended permanent capital vehicles. But they also often benefit from the connections of the founders. They're often family-backed. They often, therefore, can take an entrepreneurial view and be quite flexible and do some quite esoteric things. Um, as you can see, if you look at the portfolio, for example, of RIT, where they've got some interesting venture staff and, and in some of the finest private equity funds that the world has to offer. And then they have some more mainstream publicly traded equity and credit um, um, exposures. So, so my idea with Manhattan was to try to emulate those characteristics of, of long-term investing, fundamental analysis-led, um, but also with a kind of bottom-up opportunistic approach in, in respect of being able to get into some of these more esoteric positions. And I wanted to apply that thinking to the theme of energy and resource efficiency, which we had looked at for years at Web. Um, so, so that, that's the investment trust we, we, we now manage. And, um, We've had a good run during the last five years. We've compounded it almost 14% annualized. Um, and um, the share price discount to NAV is perhaps a little frustration, but that is kind of um, part of the course with investment trusts. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we can get into detail on Manhattan uh, shortly. I wondered whether uh, at Web, obviously back in 2003, when you pivot to focus on European clean tech or that sector in general, did you face much opposition? I mean, now, I guess at Manhattan, that focus in sustainability-focused uh, investment is something that isn't commonplace now, but is more widely accepted and known. But back in 2003, what, what sort of opposition did you face in trying to make that the focus of the business? So I think people thought we were evangelicals trying to change the world using their money. And um, especially with a surname like Goldsmith, <laughs> lots of members of my family have been integrally involved in environmental campaigning. My uncle Teddy was the founding editor of The Ecologist magazine and was one of the first candidates to stand for the Green Party back in the 1960s. My father was a, an environmentally focused philanthropist for a long time. My brother, Zach, edited The Ecologist and then conducted the David Cameron kind of green review and and actually has stayed in politics and now is one of the ministers for environment at DEFRA and the Foreign Office. So as a family, we have a name as, as environmental campaigners. And I think in the early 2000s, when I was really young, I was kind of 21 at that time, people thought, look, look, here's someone looking to raise a fund to further their political beliefs. 
through through venture capital investing. And and at that time, a lot of this stuff really was seen as pie in the sky. You know, if you told someone in 2004-5 that by 2020, you know, the vast majority of global annual investment in new electricity generation capacity would be in wind and solar, they'd have thought you were completely mad. You know, if you told them that by 2020, two-thirds of the world's population would be living in places where solar is demonstrably the cheapest source of power generation, you know, they, they wouldn't have believed it. You know, solar at that time was simply not economic without lashings of subsidy. The same was true of wind. Um, electrified transportation was nowhere. Um, so I think people thought this is, um, this is slightly pie-in-the-sky stuff. And their skepticism turned out to be justified because our first venture capital fund at Webb did not do well. You know, these businesses mostly didn't survive. We had an interesting enough story that we were able to go on and raise new funds and, and, and Alpina Partners mm. now has a good track record. And, you know, only that first venture fund in everything they've done is a kind of black mark against their performance. So I, I'd say that people were a little incredulous, um, but that changed as the years went by. And, and by the time I was out raising money for the Manhattan IPO, I think there was a certain amount of excitement in all of this stuff um, because people could see that the changes were happening um, at scale. Now, if, if, for example, if you look, um, we're just rewinding back to when, when we were growing web, um, Stuart Rose, who was chief executive at the time of Marks and Spencer, announced his plan B with the strap line because there is a, a sorry, no, they called it plan A. Sorry, I fluffed the line. They called it plan A with the strap line because there, because there is no plan B. And it was a huge series of investments in energy and resource efficiency within Marks and Spencer. You know, new <laughs> electricity uh, saving refrigeration units and LED lighting and fuel mm. efficient trucks and all sorts of things. The coat hangers that you return and you get, you get a kind of deposit return scheme and all these kinds of things. And he was pilloried by the city at the time mm. for misallocation of capital. It was a, several hundred billions of pounds of investment. And uh, within three or four years, Plan A had paid for itself and more and turns out to have been one of the best financial investments Marks and Spencer's ever made. And, and, and the chairman of Manhattan, Sir Ian Cheshire, was at the same time chief executive of Kingfisher PLC, which is the parent of B&Q. And Kingfisher under Sir Ian had a similarly ambitious program around efficiency and greening up, and that's paid off handsomely. And now you'll struggle to find any company in the FTSE 250 that has not looked very hard at resource use and emissions and so on, and isn't investing heavily in widgets and processes and technologies that can help it to use resources much more efficiently. So now it's this has become mainstream. You know, every, every day, the newspaper is full of stories of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wonder whether then uh, your founding of Environmental Funders Network, EFN, back again in 2003, did that you know, follow a similar narrative in the sense that it was met perhaps with initial skepticism, but now um, it's widely recognized and you've got a lot of investment flowing into the network. Would that be fair? Yeah. So that's a different part of my life. But yes, the story was on the same trajectory and within the same theme. So whilst I spent my yeah. days building web in the same way that now I spend my days building Manhattan, um, I spent my evenings and my free time building the Environmental Funders Network back then. And that's really a kind of forum or a trade body, if you like, for trusts and foundations and families who are giving money on a philanthropic basis to environmental causes. Mm -hmm. So this is not about investing or even impact investing. This was about guiding people in their philanthropy to be more effective because philanthropic capital really is potent. I mean, it's, it's like rocket fuel. You know, it, it, there are people behind the scenes all over mm -hmm. the place doing weird and wonderful things in, in, in an effort to restore nature. You'll have someone who's campaigning to restore seagrass meadows in Devon and someone else who's trying to get single-use plastics banned in Bristol, and someone else who's persuading farmers in Suffolk to use less pesticides or create river buffer corridors, the people campaigning to save rare and endangered species. These people typically work on a shoestring budget or no budget at all. So relatively modest amounts of philanthropy can, can turbocharge their work. Um, and what I wanted when I created the Environmental Funders Network was to persuade more people with money to spare to direct some of it towards these issues on a philanthropic basis. Um, at the time, just 2% of 
of total philanthropic giving in Britain uh, was being directed towards environmental work. Um, that number happily has inflated somewhat since wow. then. And the Environmental Funders Network today represents members who are giving out about quarter of a billion pounds between them to environmental work each year. So yes, it's a similar kind of story in that back then, um, giving money on a philanthropic basis towards the environment was quite a rare thing. People tended to want to build hospitals or art galleries, a nice gold plaque above the door with your family name on it kind of thing. Um, and now a lot more people are doing environmental work. Um, but it was, a, to be clear for your listeners, this was a different part of my life. This is a, about making change happen through philanthropy, whereas Webb and then Manhattan were about making money, investing in what I see as the most exciting secular commercial trend of our lives. No, absolutely. And you're right to make the distinction. I think, I think it is useful uh, to get the context because you haven't just restricted uh, your kind of um, focus on this space in, in just investment, in just making money. You have used your, your profile, your wealth to kind of pioneer this cause, I suppose, uh, throughout your life, regardless of whether it was work-related or not, I suppose. Uh, and kind of on that line, you hold several non-executive directorships in the space as well. I wonder whether kind of bringing in any of those might be relevant at this point. Sure. So my focus day to day is is running the investment trust. Uh, we're a team of five. Um, we don't churn the portfolio. We don't trade. We're very thoughtful about how we go about adding positions or realizing investments. And um, I've got a certain amount of bandwidth to do a handful of things, which I consider to be accretive. Um, outside of Manhattan. So I'm, mm. I'm on three boards outside of Manhattan. Um, I'm on the board of DEFRA, which is the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And I'm therefore um, a fiduciary, but also an advisor to the government on environmental policy. And there's lots of really exciting things happening on that front right now. Um, I'm also chairman of the Conservative Environment Network, which principally coordinates a caucus of 100 conservative members of parliament who have an interest in environmental issues. Everything from the hydrogen economy to offshore wind to protecting dolphins to creating um, new nature-rich national parks or whatever it might be. So we, um, we're just an active force within the conservative mm -hmm. government around these issues. And then the third non-executive position I hold is as a trustee of the foundation created by legendary hedge fund manager Sir Christopher Hone. Uh, the foundation is called CIF, C-I-F-F. And we have about $6 billion of assets, all of which mm. come from Sir Christopher. Um, and we have a grants budget of about $400 million a year focused on climate and environment and family planning. So I have that, that charity trusteeship as well. And it's directly relevant, that last position in particular, because Sir Christopher is the most successful, the most feared activist investor really that i can think of um that's how he's made the returns he has for his investors and mm. he is now using his experience and his muscle as an investor to force companies to um develop and implement uh, meaningful uh, emissions reductions plans with net zero in mind um and he is using ballot initiatives and annual general meetings and, um, and, and other kind of shareholder um, mechanisms to get those things adopted. And I think that's a really, really exciting thing. His, his campaign is called sayonclimate.org. Um, and um, th that's an interesting campaign to be part of. So, so one, of the, one of the things that Sir Christopher is going to be doing in the course of the next year is financing a particular charity in acquiring a handful of shares in every single company in the S&P 500, enough to be able to then, as a shareholder, put such a ballot initiative on the next annual general meeting, and then he will rabble-rouse amongst shareholders to back that initiative. So he is really at the forefront of using investor pressure to get companies to reduce their, their emissions and develop credible emissions reductions plans. And that bear in mind that, I don't remember the exact proportion, but about 80 of the world's companies are responsible for a significant majority of the world's emissions. So if you can move them, you start to fix the problem. Um, so I have these handful of interests outside of Manhattan, and one of them involves working very closely with this legendary investor, which is a privilege. 
I mean, absolutely. And that's sort of a a fascinating uh, thing to be part of. I wonder whether then that's sort of an extreme example of what a single investor can do and what impact that they can have. I mean, how much do you, how much impact do you think a single retail investor can have on companies? Would you suggest putting the onus on individual investors to, to get to grips with this problem and start to solve it? I think retail investors have a big role to play. You know, because um, they have a vote in these AGMs. And I think that if each individual investor were to think to themselves, what's my vote going to do? Um, you know, nothing would really happen. And in fact, when they do rally themselves, you know, things really do change. Um, I, I was told by the um, investor relations representative at one of our portfolio companies that when they receive a single letter from a shareholder about something, they apply a hundredfold importance to it on the basis that their research suggests that only one out of every hundred people who think it put pen to paper and write it. So if you do write a letter to a company in which you're a shareholder, that carries a lot of weight. If you do turn up at the AGM and vote on some of these climate initiatives or environmental initiatives, it really does count. Um, So I I think individual investors have a responsibility to engage with the companies in their portfolio where they can and to encourage those companies, which they ultimately own, to be more responsible in respect of their activities and so on. I also think that those companies will perform better if they do change their ways. Um, Companies with vast emissions have actually performed pretty poorly in the last decade. If you'd invested in 2012 in coal across any part of the value chain, from mining through to coal-fired power generation, you'd have lost about 90% of the value of your investment. Uh, conversely, if you'd invested in renewables in, the, in that time, you'd have, you, you'd have had a pretty good positive return. So coal has been obliterated. And now you have the emergence of this idea, which is known as stranded assets, assets which will be stranded either by regulation or bad economics. So trying to build a coal-fired power station in Mexico simply doesn't work now because solar is so much cheaper. And existing coal-fired power stations are being squeezed everywhere because the cost curve is just down and solar is able to deliver cheap power flexibly in a way that outcompetes coal. So those assets are becoming stranded on the one hand by poor economics and a lack of competitiveness against the kind of new incumbency, but also um, they're getting squeezed by regulation and countries one after the other are announcing these net zero targets, which involve the phasing out, for example, of things like coal. So who wants to own a coal-fired power station right now or the bonds of a coal-fired power station? I think being mindful of climate and environment impact in your portfolio probably also pays off as well as being simply the, the, the right thing to do. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And actually, well, I mean, we've touched on a few potential investments there. So it's a nice juncture, I think, to move on to discuss Manhattan in, in, in greater detail. I wonder whether um, this could be a bit of an abstract question, but whether you could characterize or, or simply describe Manhattan's mission statement? What's, what's the company about? What are you trying to achieve? So the idea is to build a concentrated portfolio of, of uh, positions in which we have conviction, um, where each position really means something to us, and where we have the intention of holding each position for the long term. So we tend to have between 15 and 20 positions, which is much more concentrated than nearly all of our peer group. So we, we look to invest in a concentrated way in companies which have very strong competitive positioning, you know, high entry barriers or moats, as um, some have described them, are companies with strong balance sheets, with cash flows that we can really understand and therefore predict with some degree of comfort. So by that token, you'd say that you know, we're a value investor. We're pretty conservative. And my partner loves to requote someone else, I don't remember who, in saying um, you know, we're more concerned with the return of our capital than the return on our capital. So the first question is, how are we going to lose money here? And we think that, that strong balance sheets, predictable cash flows, strong um, uh, competitive positioning, high entry barriers, these are the areas on which we focus in, in our fundamental analysis around each position, public or private. So we like concentration, we like value. And from a thematic perspective, 
We like companies which are either delivering or materially benefiting from the more efficient use of, of, of energy and resources. And so, so, so if that's the Venn diagram, you know, it's, it's, it's value and, and so on, it's high entry barriers and it's energy and resource efficiency, you end up with a relatively small universe because we're not investing in the sort of high growth stocks in some of the more exciting, some of the hotter new areas. So for example, the, uh, Acuity Brands is, is a leader in LED lighting, but trades on a massive multiple. And any, any stumble in that path to growth and um, investors are going to feel the pain. And so we tend not to focus on those very growthy companies. And um, instead, we look at some what you might think of as relatively stodgy businesses. So, for example, we have exposure to Canadian Pacific, um, Canadian Union uh, and Union Pacific, which are the um, uh, North American freight railroad franchise um, monopolies. Each, each one has a regional monopoly. So very high entry barriers in the form of the installed railroad and so on. A very strong pricing power as a result, uh, strong balance sheets, low leverage and cheap. Um, and, and also from an energy and resource efficiency perspective, uh, sending stuff about by rail uh, is about 90% more energy efficient than sending it around by truck. Um, we, we also own Ocean Wilson's Holdings, which is a, a ports and shipping business, uh, because sending stuff around by ship is 90% more fuel efficient still than sending it by rail. So that's kind of the Venn diagram, really. Um, and in terms of uh, the, the asset mix, the idea is to spread the assets across publicly traded investments and private investments. So on, on the publicly traded side of things, we're generally investing in very large companies that look appealing from the various characteristics that, that I've described. Um, we apply a similar lens to private investments, except that we like to co-invest with, with world-class co-investors. Because we're just a team of five, we're a small fund, so we like to co-invest with Apollo, for example. We made an, a real estate investment in Berlin two years ago uh, with a good outcome. Uh, we've co-invested twice with the infrastructure team at KKR, uh, once in a solar um, asset developer and operator, and a second time in the UK's market-leading domestic energy metering business, which is called Calisend, now listed on the FTSE 250. Um, so we've co-invested with a leading Brazilian asset manager in an electricity transmission infrastructure play. Uh, but where we make a private investment, it must meet the same kinds of criteria as any investment in the public portfolio. But, but additionally, we want to co-invest behind people who really know what they're doing. So that's where the kind of network effect comes in. Um, we want to take advantage of, of the relationships that we have um, in order to get ourselves into some of these deals. And then to show that we can be useful co-investors, that we can add value, we can open doors and that sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of the approach. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really interesting example you pulled out there, the, the freight example, whereby, you know, of course, they're not operating using renewable energy, but that is, uh, by and large, the most efficient way to operate that service. Uh, and therefore, that's a Manhattan investment. You know, is it right to pull out that distinction? It's not necessarily clean energy is just the most efficient use of energy, as it were. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, know I think by, um, by dint of the fact that these businesses are shifting stuff around North America at a significant reduction in energy consumption and emissions versus trucking, trucking alternatives, I think mm. that that fits, in, fits quite neatly into our theme. You know, we, we would like it mm. from a global impact perspective if a lot more stuff was carted around by rail than is currently the case. So um, uh, uh, you know, we're not in the business of changing the world through Manhattan. You know, we, we're in, like any other investor, we're looking to develop um, uh, a portfolio that's going to produce uh, strong financial returns. We want to protect our capital. And we also want to engage with the companies in our portfolio, um, as any responsible investor should, uh, to persuade them to move on the right track in terms of the uh, the environmental, social, and governance stuff. Mm. So we're kind of engaged from an ESG perspective, but we're, we're not trying to save the world through our, through our investments. So by no means, we're just looking to be a responsible investor uh, um, um, uh, with the aim of making great risk-adjusted returns in a particular uh, um, uh, sort of secular trend. Um, and, and I think the shift from trucks to rail is a pretty good one. 
I mean, Al Alphabet's another interesting one in the portfolio. People ask, you know, why is Alphabet green? You know, Alphabet is the parent of Google, mm -hmm. um, which has a, a, a global, sort of unimpeachable global monopoly on search. And um, Alphabet is the world's, of all the tech businesses in the world, uses more electricity than any other. And 100% of that electricity is generated from renewable sources. Um, Alphabet is also offsetting all of its historic emissions through investment in nature restoration. Um, Alphabet has a whole bunch of data centers, um, which are by about 30% more energy efficient than the benchmark because of the deep mind um, artificial intelligence technology that, that they've developed. They're able to uh, build and operate much more efficient data centers than others. So, I mean, I think Alphabet's doing a whole bunch of interesting stuff. And then you look at their, their kind of, um, their, their other bets, you know, the kind of Waymo, for example, the, um, uh, automation in transportation. Um, you look at some of the stuff in electrification. You know, I, I think Alphabet is really at the forefront of solving some of the world's problems. Um, and um, also looks like a pretty powerful, from a competitive standpoint, looks pretty powerful versus its peers. Uh, and also, if you if you factor the kind of, very predictable growth also looks pretty cheap. So Alphabet for us sits squarely in the middle of that Venn diagram. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, if anyone's going to disrupt the space properly, Alphabet are, are one of the best places to do it. So so that makes complete sense to me. And I, I just had a question here about sort of time horizon. Um, you, you talked about uh, focusing on value within the portfolio, but some of these bets must be for at least the medium term and potentially the the long term if if you had to put a time horizon on the portfolio uh, a typical one that you that you could uh, assign to to each of your positions what would it be i mean five years is sort of the number that we look at from an analytical perspective mm. so we typically look at performance five years out have a price target during those five years um so I, i'd say five um, although we, we are very comfortable with some positions in the portfolio that we've held from the start. Um, and there have been positions that we've held for less than a year, yeah. uh, either because the facts have changed, so our views have changed, or because they hit our price target sooner than we expected. But we don't trade, we don't churn, and we try to focus on that kind of longer-term perspective. So, so, yeah, I'd say five years is sort of on the mark. Yeah, great. Okay. No, that makes sense. And without getting sort of too granular, I'm keen to sort of get a better understanding of the firm's investment strategy. So um, you pursue an active non-benchmarked total return strategy. So although you do use a long-term financial performance comparator, which I read is now in the form of RPI plus 3%, this recently replaced the MSCI World Total Return Index, which you previously used as a comparator. What was the thinking there from changing from that index? So I don't think that any of the major global indices represent a valid mm. benchmark for us on the basis that we are much more concentrated um, than any of those indices. And also on the basis that we have a big chunk of private investments and also private credit investments. Um, so so the, the number at the moment is only 20%, but that's partly as a result of a string of successful exits during the course of the last year. And I would expect the sort of long-term position to be roughly 50-50 uh, between publicly traded and private positions. So with that in mind, we don't really think that an equity benchmark is particularly valid, um, especially given that we're, we're focused on capital preservation over the long term. Um, and so um, we decided instead to, to try to deliver investors um, yeah, a return above inflation. Um, inflation is the big enemy, and um, if we can beat that by by a handful of points each year, then I think investors should be pretty happy. Um, also, I just add as an aside that, that we're trying to emulate the best of the kind of family managed vehicles, you know, which have done so well over time. Rip being the obvious example, um, and um, often those family vehicles benchmark themselves against inflation plus. Um, certainly, my own family's investment group has, has approached things that way for a long time. Uh, because what's the goal of the family investment vehicle? Well, it's to um, maintain and, if possible, expand purchasing power over a long period of time. So therefore, the relevant benchmark is inflation and not um, what the equity markets are doing. We hope you're enjoying the episode. 
For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, interesting to get that sort of inside take, uh, particularly, I mean, uh, for retail investors specifically, having a non-benchmarked fund and trying to understand how you actually measure performance on a day-to-day basis is is an interesting one. And, and uh, that does make sense that you're not benchmarked against any of the major equity benchmarks. Um, but perhaps if we turn our minds then to recent or current markets um, and we focus on clean energy. I know this is this is a segment of the sustainable focused investments that you look at, but clean energies uh, hit the headlines uh, last year with with massive returns in that space. Um, but after an impressive 2020, uh, they've started 2021 less positively. Uh, for example, uh, Invesco's Wilder Hill Clean Energy Index, which was uh, one of the top performing ETFs um, last year, is down over eight percent um, as we head into Q2. So I just wondered, and I was keen to get your take, given you're so heavily sort of involved in this space, where do you expect clean energy investment as a whole to trend this year? Do you think it will be negatively in comparison to 2020 or will we have quite a positive 2021 in your opinion? So I don't know that I could make that kind of a forecast um, with any kind of credibility, but we do have concerns um, as a team around... um, uh, uh, clean energy as an mm. investment theme, um, not because we don't love it. You know, we we are all wildly excited by the fact that renewables are overtaking fossil fuel alternatives, and that the the the, the future is definitely a renewably powered one. And that is that is just extraordinarily good news for civilization and for for the mm. world. Um, I, I guess our concerns revolve around um, around how that has happened. And what has happened is that the manufacture of the equipment um, uh, used in solar and wind power generation has got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. That's why these things are now outcompeting fossil fuels. So that is wonderful news. But the problem is, is that as these things continue to get cheaper, they don't just have the effect of stranding coal assets or even gas assets or nuclear assets. In due course, they start to strand earlier versions of themselves. So if you imagine 2021 solar might end up outcompeting and stranding uh, 2012 solar, which costs so much more to build. So in many cases, these assets have, um, have uh, are subject to long-term power purchase agreements, but not always. A lot of them are built um, to serve the spot market. And so if the price of power continues to go down in line with the tumbling cost of installing solar and installing wind, to the extent that suddenly solar power becomes you know, ubiquitously cheap, you know, maybe even too cheap almost to meter, then you don't want to be left holding assets which are trying to make a return on a much higher amount of capital invested in earlier years. If you see what I mean, that the declining cost of solar and wind becomes an issue for those who hold assets built in earlier years, in our view. So we are concerned a little bit from that regard in owning um, what is effectively a piece of infrastructure selling a commodity um, in a market where that commodity gets cheaper every year. Uh, we would rather own assets which are protected from some form of barriers to entry or you know, some kind of competitive positioning. Um, so for that reason, uh, we think that as the good news rolls in clean energy, that may actually produce, um, ironically, uh, a declining or negative return on the assets. Um, in terms of um, new technology and the kind of you know, f- further up the value chain, the kind of development of new ideas, new technology and renewables, that's a very competitive game. I mean, that is hugely capital intensive. You know, if you and I go out and develop some new kind of solar panel, which performs better than anyone else's solar panel, well, we've got to show over several years that that works at scale. So we're going to have to find the capital to build a project ourselves. We're going to have to run that project. We're going to have to come up with years and years of operating data before banks will begin to lend to project developers looking to use our technology. So we've got to be very patient and have very deep pockets. And meanwhile, uh, 101 other people are also developing new solar panel technology. And so who knows which one is going to be the winner? So I think that the kind of technology development venture game is, is really, um, it's really exciting and endure, endearing. You know, and we, one wants to be part of it. 
but it's um it's not that much better than roulette really um so um mm. so all in all we don't do much in renewables we we have one renewables position yeah Okay. Yeah, interesting. Well, my next question was to turn to portfolio construction. So perhaps we can get an idea of just which sectors of the market you're kind of most overweight or bullish on right now. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of positions, but is there a particular area of the market that you're more overweight? So we've got a big position in Charter, uh, which is an mm. American broadband um, uh, business with an enormous installed base serving a huge chunk of the U.S. population with broadband. Um, we think that the charter is compelling because it's, it's cheap by any metric you care to choose. Um, and there's an enormous uh, barrier in the form of the installed base that has been built over a long period of time and at huge expense. And we think that broadband, especially in an era of COVID, um, becomes kind of you know, absolutely essential um, not just so you can work from home and communicate and entertainment and all of that stuff, but also for things like the, the, the Internet of Things, as it's known, mm. which is the more efficient use of power through the development of smart grids in which your washing machine is communicating with the grid while you're asleep. And when power is cheap at the middle of the night, the washing machine turns itself on um, and washes your clothes um, much more cheaply than if you'd done it in the middle of the day. Um, so all of that requires broadband. So we think that broadband is compelling in and of itself as a market, but also is, is, is a key component in the development of a smart grid and an Internet of Things, which enables the dramatic improvement in, in the efficiency with which we use stuff. So um, we, we like Charter. That's almost 20% of our portfolio. Uh, we have another 20% of our portfolio in Alphabet, which we've discussed. Um, we've got 12.5% in the North American railroads. So you, you can see that we're... we're we're um we're um we're, we're we're pretty concentrated, but we also like waste management um, PLC. Uh, that's a business which has um, a, a series of regional monopolies in waste collection, waste sorting, mm. waste recycling, and all of that stuff. Um, and those contracts are typically very long term contracts, and um and and usually get renewed. So again, there's a barrier there. It's quite hard to displace waste management as the provider in a particular city or whatever. Um, so that's another theme. Uh, we like water, although we haven't actually got an investment in the water sector yet, but we're keen to find one. Um, we like the idea of, a, of, 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 of investing in water distribution infrastructure right. um, in, in markets with a benign regulatory environment and a respect for private property um, and, and a respect for contracts um so we've looked for example in, in in brazil which is a place that that um that, that that one of my partners luciano suana who's our lead portfolio manager has many years of experience in um having run the credit business for latin america or structured credit business for latin america for barclays out of sao paulo for many years um we we like electricity transmission um you know that that's that's critical as well in the development of, of smart grids and and in the useful deployment of renewables, you need to be able to get the power from where you can generate it, where there's lots of wind, for example, uh, to where it's needed in, in the cities, for example. Um, and again, those, those, those assets, once they're built, um, are unlikely to be replicated. So those are, um, those are, um, um, assets which benefit from, from kind of entry barriers that are pretty good. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, water strikes me as interesting. If I'm understanding it correctly, it's not necessarily hydro and, and the use of water to power other things, but it's simply some of the businesses in that space are using or distributing that energy efficiently. Is, is, is that right? I think what interests us is the, this, the, the distribution of water to people's homes. So it's, right. it's water distribution infrastructure, you know, the pipes and all that stuff under the roads. We think that that's a really interesting um, a category of, of, of infrastructure um, if, if we can find um, opportunities there in, in the right places. And um, hydroelectric assets are also interesting, although they suffer from the same problem as other renewable assets, which is that they're selling a product um, in the form of electricity, which is completely commoditized. Right. And we believe that the cost of power is just going to continue to decline year on year as things like solar get cheaper and cheaper. So we would be less interested in hydroelectric power as an asset class. Um, and then from a personal perspective, I would just add, 
I don't really like big dams. I think that they're um, environmentally quite destructive. Lot, lots of species move up and down the rivers, mm. and 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 the vast majority of our rivers in the world have been terribly straitjacketed with a uh, with concrete infrastructure, dikes, weirs, and dams. Of course, in the UK we have sixty thousand obsolete dams, um, which make the river completely impassable for species like salmon, or trout, or eels, or otters, or what have you. Um, and I think that um, we should be removing dams, not building new ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hadn't realised there were so many. Um, so, so that's that's extremely interesting today. Um, we've touched on ESG, and I wonder at this point of the, the conversation, it's it's worth looking at sustainable investment uh, more broadly. Um, ESG investors, arguably, um, and perhaps it's 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 quite easy to argue in favour of this, had to in the past choose between their head and their heart when it came to clean energy investments. You know. Uh, they had to discount almost investment returns in favour of morality, I suppose. But have we reached the point, in your opinion, where investors needn't compromise on those morals to realise significant returns? Particularly if we're now to look ahead, obviously, with, with the various headwinds that you, you've described in the clean energy space. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, I would say that it's never black and white. You know, it's always varying shades of grey. For example, to build an electric car, which we would generally see as a good thing, um, you require lots of rare earth metals that often get dug out of pristine environments using workers who perhaps don't have the best time of it. So there are kind of shades of grey in almost any situation you can consider. Um, that being said, I'd say that fundamentally, in, in, in inverted commas, the good companies tend now to be outperforming the bad companies. Now, solar is beating wind. Electrified transport is beating the internal combustion engine. Um, and I think in the more kind of mainstream sectors, I think it's becoming harder and harder for companies to project a, 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 a good image in their, in their target market whilst abusing the natural environment or society at large in another place. You know, Coca-Cola, you know, they, they can't present themselves as a, as a force for good in America and Europe whilst um, destroying watersheds or um, depriving villages of, of, of drinking water in India. It, it just, just doesn't work in an era of social media. Everything is connected and, 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 and people are a lot more engaged than they've ever been previously. Um, so I'd say, that, um, I'd say that companies are having to clean up their act because if they don't, they find it harder to attract and retain good staff. They find it harder to keep their consumers loyal, their customers loyal. Um, their investors are applying pressure on them. Regulators are getting tougher and tougher around particularly environmental impact. And social media is the fuel of a lot of this. So I'd say that the, the, the time has come that companies which take these issues really seriously and which minimize their negative impact on the environment and which behave responsibly and sensibly and which are generally, as far as I've seen, better managed companies overall, I think the time has come in which they perform better than their peer group who are still uh, doing all the bad stuff. So, um, I, I, yeah, I think the good guys are winning. Um, and I think the, the, the smart money is on those people. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I guess if we look at the major sort of financial in institutions like JP Morgan, for example, I mean, they're, they're a, a bit of a uh, quandary, I guess, between obviously funding a lot of the biggest fossil fuel uh, providers in, well, in, in the world, on the planet, despite the CEO's enthusiasm for change. Do you, do you expect significant change from some of these major asset managers? Because obviously, if, uh, if JP Morgan or the like were to commit to uh, making significant change in this space, that would be a, a, a massive uh, win for, for the renewable uh, and clean energy and even just sustainability cause. Uh, but how likely do you think that is? I mean, I think it's coming. It's not coming fast enough, but it's coming for sure. Um, I think customers are being mobilized by, for example, some of the big NGOs and so on to change their bank accounts, to change their electricity suppliers, you know, to change what food brands they favor when they go to the supermarket you know, on the basis of environmental performance. You know, companies like JP Morgan, uh, which owns a massive retail banking operation in the US, are becoming very, very sensitive to, to the mood of their client base around this stuff. And then, and then at, at the other end of the pipe, you have their investors demanding that they take climate 
climate and the environment into account in their lending policies. So one bank after the next now is starting to announce net zero lending targets. In other words, by 2030 or by 2040, the emissions effect of our entire lending book will be net zero. Now, that's a massive task, um, um, but it's one that, that one major bank after the next is now signing up to on the basis that they can't not because their consumers are demanding it. Their staff, especially the younger ones, are demanding it. And now their investors, led by people like Sir Christopher Hone, are also demanding it. And, 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 and that there is behind all of this tailwind of increasingly tough regulatory action. And the Biden administration is very, very serious about America's net zero target. And they can't get there if the big banks don't, don't fall into line. So I think, um, I think we can be pretty optimistic. I mean, if we're going to talk about optimism and pessimism, you know, I'm optimistic that we will figure out how to decarbonize our economic activities across the board. I think we will get there. You know, we will live in a world that is not emitting on a net basis um, emissions um, in, in, in 2040 or 2050, kind of in time. You know, I think we will move to um, a net zero in, in the form of um, re renewable electricity and, and ele electrified transport and, um, and, and net zero across our major heavily emitting industries and all of that stuff. I, th I think we'll get there. You know, there's so much momentum now. Um, the bit that I'm pessimistic about is really um, in, in relation to the living fabric of the, of the planet, you know, nature. You know, I think that even if we do get to net zero mm. on time, it's not going to be enough if we've killed nature, which is what we're doing. You know, we, 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 the world destroyed an area of primary forest. In other words, forests that had never been touched by human hands, larger than the United Kingdom in 2020. Now, if we keep on destroying forest at that rate, if we keep on industrially fishing our seas, as, as, as exposed brilliantly in the new film Sea Spiracy, which I'm sure lots of people have seen, now, if we continue losing species, losing habitats, mm. Then, then the natural fabric of the planet will not be able to sustain us. And this is our most important tool, not, not just in fixing the climate problem, because nature is what's absorbing the vast amount of our emissions, but it's also um, essential to, 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 to everything that we do. Now, the economy is subsidiary to the environment, not the other way around. So my, my worry is that businesses and the world mm. are not taking the nature crisis as seriously as the climate crisis. And these are two sides of exactly the same coin. And if we don't tackle both, then I think we're toast. You know, if we don't figure out how to integrate frictionlessly human systems into natural ones, then, uh, then I think we're done for. You know, we, we can't go on producing food the way we're producing food now in a relentless, escalating chemical warfare with nature. We can't go on destroying habitats. We have to begin the process of healing and, 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 and restoring natural habitats. So I don't think that's been taken seriously enough yet. And um, I think the answer to that problem, in part, lies in better economics. You know, a healthy ecosystem produces services mm. which have an economic value which goes currently unrecognized. So take, for example, a seagrass meadow. Well, a seagrass meadow, acre for acre, absorbs 10 times more carbon from the atmosphere than the Amazon. Yet in the UK, we've destroyed 95% of our seagrass meadows wow. through bottom trawling. Um, there is a price per tonne for carbon. Therefore, there is a price that you can apply to the service provided by that seagrass meadow. You just look at how many tons it's absorbing and you apply a price per ton and you get to an economic value. So there is a value to a seagrass meadow in economic terms. The same applies to a field in a farm that is, um, that is, harvest, that is uh, managed on a regenerative basis, which is therefore absorbing carbon. There is a value to a forest which helps prevent flooding uh, because its roots absorb the rainfall after a storm event. All ecosystems are producing services which have economic value to us. And if we can apply that economic value, then that changes the whole structure of um, the whole incentive structure around almost every economic decision um, in favor of nature. So I, I figure that, um, that, that, that the economics of nature are going to be um, the, the, a major driving force for businesses and for investors in the next decade. And that the, a big review on this was, was just recently produced by um, a, a gentleman called Das Gupta. 
the Das Gupta review is for nature what the Stern review was for mm. climate. Um, and um, we need to wake up to that pretty damn fast. You know, companies are not going to get away with destroying rainforests um, uh, through their supply chains or through their activities uh, for very much longer. Yeah. So I, uh, I think that's all very important. No, I mean, I, I completely agree on that point about the nature crisis not being tackled with the same sort of enthusiasm and having enough or the same significance placed upon it as the climate crisis is, is completely the right one. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, and actually, I think, I think, to be honest, we can end the main body of the interview there. And actually, we could probably fill another podcast talking about the, the climate crisis and the nature crisis more broadly uh, by itself. Um, so, so perhaps uh, further down the line, we can do that. Um, now, we do have our quick fire question round. So after that extremely important um, sort of section on the podcast and, and the, the insight that you've just given us, I think we're turning to perhaps the most trivial part of the podcast. Uh, so hopefully not too much of a juxtaposition, but this is this is a generic list of questions we ask all of our guests. So they're investment themed, um, and they should be applicable to to all of the guests we have on the show. So so let's see how we go. Uh, but feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word if you like. Sure. The first question is simply: What is the top mistake investors make, in your opinion? I'm getting excited about. Uh, a, a very new technology without considering the business plan and the, and the team, most importantly, the team that is going to deliver that business plan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Far too many retail investors uh, in particular definitely get carried away with that sort of stuff. Completely agree. Um, question two then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers, for example? You know what? I love Money Week. I think Merrin Somerset Webb is brilliant. She's the editor of Money Week. And um, it's kind of light and approachable and full of common sense. And, and I, 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 um, I like Money Week. I, I, you know, I, I enjoy some of the heavier newsletters produced by some of the legendary investors in New York. Um, but Howard Marks, for example, produces a fantastic newsletter. Um, but I am, um, yeah, most of all, Money Week each week. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, now, this could be a tricky one, but what is the most memorable moment from your career today? Uh, perhaps it's just one that, that you know comes into your head now. It doesn't necessarily need to be a, a defining moment. I think it was the moment I was able, in the course of one conversation, to persuade Michael Gove, who was then the Secretary of State at DEFRA, to give the go-ahead to a planned reintroduction of white-tailed eagles to the Isle of Wight. The Forestry Commission and various environment groups have wanted to do this for 30 years. And one Secretary of State after the next had said, no, 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 no way. You know, this bird has an eight-foot wingspan. There's no place for it in the south of England, even though they used to be here two or 300 years ago. And Michael Gove said, well, of course. And, um, and it happened. And I was jubilant. I can imagine. Um, wow, yeah, I've got a lot of questions. Uh, shame I uh, left that one for the quick-fire question round. Um, okay, interesting. Right, so our penultimate question, a top tip for your younger self. Trust your instincts, definitely. Trust your gut. You know, be be connected with your be connected with your instincts because I think they are the source of the most useful wisdom that is at your disposal. Yeah, no, completely. Uh, and one we've had on on the show before, actually, uh, really solid advice, I think. So the final question, this sort of the opto question, we aim to speak to the uh, investors, the companies outperforming typical or standard benchmark returns. So we ask everyone, what is an investor's best source of alpha, in your opinion? I mean, I think it's got to be not to lose money. <laughs> I know that's cliche, mm. but, but the best way you're going to outperform everyone else over a long period of time is, is I think, is not to lose money. Um, so um, sorry to finish on a cliche, but it's true. <laughs> no, no, completely right. Yeah. Definitely agree. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, Ben, for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, you're really kind. Um, I hope I haven't waffled too much and I'm very grateful to have been asked. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. 
we've done the hard work for you highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.